Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be made clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken And contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then then will you delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. I figure if you get nothing else out of what I have now to say, you at least got a whole chapter of God's word in your heads. And so, hey, that has its own benefits. So you're welcome for reading all the way through Psalm 51. Even as I read it, I'm like, man, I could have talked about that. There's all kinds of things we're not going to talk about. So there's just, it's filled with all sorts of of wisdom and um, as all scripture actually is. So what, why do we do, I mean, here's the kind of the question that's, this is a, big question, but why do we do what we do? What is the motivation driving underneath the actions that we take, the things that we say, the behaviors that we engage in? Why do we do what we do? What are we seeking after? And many answers could be given to this question, right? We do what we do to be loved, or maybe we do what we do so that we can be right, 
or we do what we do for justification, or maybe for vindication, like I do what I do so that I can be vindicated, or maybe we do it because we're searching for peace at some level. Why do we do what we do? But this quote from Blaise Pascal has it, always stuck with me since I, since I first read it. And this quote from Blaise Pascal, he says that all men seek, and men is a gender neutral, all humanity, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. One thinks going to war is going to make them happy. The other thinks if I avoid war, then I'll be happy. Both seeking happiness through very different means. That wasn't Blaze, that was me. This will never take, this the will, excuse me, the will, what your desires are, your actions, the will never takes the least step but to this object, that of happiness. This is the motive of every action and of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Now that's pretty <laughs> graphic, like, okay, that's an attention-grabbing statement. But even in those who take those drastic measures, at a very basic, fundamental, foundational level, they are pursuing in their heads their own happiness, their own release. This is the, this is the, the happiness that they are searching after. Pascal makes the argument that what all of us are really seeking for is happiness, joy. We want to be happy. And we will use whatever means, whatever mechanism, whatever avenue we think will bring us our greatest happiness. That is the avenue we will pursue. And really, as I think as we look around at the world and into our own hearts, I don't think he's got it wrong. I think that I think he's on to something. As you look at your own motives, as you look at your own desires, you look at why you do the things that you do, sure, you may have like um, circumstantial reasons surrounding certain decisions, but underneath all of those, at some level, is the human's desire for joy, is the human desire for happiness, which is kind of a light way of saying, but, but a light way of saying, honest to goodness, joy and rejoicing. Does that, though, jive with Christianity? So, okay, if all men seek after happiness, is Christianity this pursuit of, of saying, okay, so what Christianity is, is denying your desire for joy and going uh, with responsibility for God or living obediently to Jesus. I know that you all want joy, but let's... But, but try to die to that and instead live rightly. Right? You know, you paint the picture of, I know that there's all these avenues for joy and what Christianity is, 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 it, is this the way it's perceived in our own minds, is turn your back on what will bring you joy and just do the right thing. Right? Kind of like in a Footloose style, the, the, the old movie. You know, they, all these kids are having a good time, and there's the there's the Christian people who are saying we've got to stop the fun and be righteous. Is that what Christianity is? Is Christianity about the killing of your joy and then walking in obedience to God? Is that true? If if that is true for all of humanity as a whole, that we are seeking our own joy, should it be also the pursuit of Christians? Well. As we're in the Psalms this past month, 
but get your Bible out, and let's just do a little survey here through the Psalms that, 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 these, that it's going to support this idea that central to our existence as God's people is our command to joy in Him. Central to Christianity is, in, the, in, in cooperation or agreement with, with Pascal, is joy. It is a joy to be found in Him. Let's go to Psalm. Yeah, we're going to look at quite a few. Oh, he put all of them up there. So you're already flipping there. Psalm 4. We may not look at all of these. We'll see how long this takes. But you can write those down or whatever to look them up. And actually, you get your concordance out and look out joy or rejoicing and see how the Psalter is filled with this idea. Psalm chapter 4, verse 7. You, praying to God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now, their grain and their wine abound. It's talking about getting inebriated, like in, in something, having a wild party that, that our culture likes to put out there and our, our actual context here locally puts out that nothing makes life more fun than a lot of uh, lubricating drinks that, that kind of liberate the emotions and allows us to have a good time. The psalm writer says that God has put more joy in his heart than those who have their grain and their wine abounding. Psalm 16, verse 11. Looking at it, famous passage. You make known to me the path of life in your presence with God. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. <laughs> at, at with him is the fullness in his presence, is the fullness of joy. The fullness of joy. Psalm 32, 11. Like I said, we may not go through all of these. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. Sounds more like what... Uh, what my son was doing last night as the Chiefs were playing. Shout aloud for joy, right? Like, I mean, I was home from work and trying to get cleaned up and get dressed, and I'm like, I can hardly concentrate back in my bathroom because my son is so exuberantly, you know, cheering on uh, before, before Mahomes got rolled his ankle. Anyway, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, all right? Just shout for joy, you upright in heart. Does Christianity support this idea that what we seek after is joy. And further, that joy is then found in God. Is, is Christianity contrary to the idea that what you should search for is joy? Or is it an absolute agreement with Pascal? You should search your joy just for your joy in the only place that it can really be found. Psalm 40, verse 16 uh, they look quickly at 4016. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Psalm 6410. I mean, this is just a spattering. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all of the upright in heart exult. 
Boy, this is a long list. Who made this list? Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 104, 34. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I, what? Rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 105, verse 3. We're making the case. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord be obedient. No, that's not what it says. You're following along. Let glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord forget pursuing joy and pleasure and just do the right thing. No. <laughs> let glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Rejoice. Psalm 118:24, Isaiah 25, verse 9. Wait a minute, have, have that one on there. The scriptures are replete. They are overflowing, abounding with this idea. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, 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 uh, rejoice in every trial. We are called to rejoice. So what are those who pursue God and who want others to pursue God after? We are after, I am after, what am I after here this morning? Your joy. <laughs> In God, above everything else, your joy in Jesus. What I want most for you is not to walk out these doors and be nice little good Christians who check all the boxes and make sure they're obedient. Do all, Those things, that's great if they happen. We want them to happen. But those happening devoid of love and enjoyment of God is a short-sighted glorifying of God. I'm getting ahead of myself. Our culture, this, it shouldn't be a revolutionary statement, but it is. Our culture prefers to paint Christianity within the silhouette of a frown, right? Christianity is about doing the right thing, being obedient, living righteously, being buttoned up, you know, making the right choice. You know, all these certain ideas that Christianity is painted. It's a far more common character of Christianity that our world is full of fun out there and those who want to follow Jesus need to stop all the fun and get to church. <laughs> stop all the enjoyment and get to church. Stop all the fun. Just to state as clearly as I can, what Jesus is after for you is your highest possible joy in him. It is not sacrificing your joy to follow Jesus. It is the obtaining of your joy in him. Now, I, I get that I'm not saying anything revolutionary. I mean, if you've been pursuing Jesus and if you've listened to me much, hopefully you've heard me say this kind of a lot. But this basic heartbeat in this penitential psalm from David is God restore to me this reality. What I'm after is not building a church in Ringgold County. What I'm after is not leaving a legacy for myself. What I'm after is love for you, enjoyment of Jesus. And what I want most for you is your glorifying of God by your enjoyment of him as your chief good. We must keep this at the forefront of our consideration of what it means to pursue Jesus. It is a pursuit of our highest joy found in him alone. When you get up in the morning and you're doing your devotions and you're reading your Bible, this is the pursuit of your highest joy. 
It is not the pursuit of ch checking off a list so I can say, yes, I've read this book or whatever. It is a pursuit of your joy in him. So then why are we looking at Psalm 51? Okay, because <laughs> I got I to gotta put these two together somehow. Psalm 51 is this penitential psalm. David has committed great sin. Traditionally, we think this is written in response to David's sin with Bathsheba, right? Where he has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has lusted after another woman, has taken her and, and has uh, laid with her. She's now pregnant, right? Or Uriah comes back. He doubles down on his sin by having Uriah murdered, <laughs> So that he can now be with Bathsheba, take her as his wife. The child then, born from their union, uh, dies. And David is racked with grief. And this is, him, this is him pouring out his heart over his sinfulness. This is, a, this is the, the great sin being committed by David. And here he is pouring out his heart to God. We see, we, there's so many details we could go through. But three... Um, Three common themes that run through this that I just want to emphasize this morning. And the first one is this, that there is desperation and awareness that if anything is to be done, it will be God who has to do it. If anything is to be done, it is God, it will be God who will have to do it. And the plea right at the top of the psalm, have mercy on me, O God, according to my deserving of it. According to my pursuit of you, according to my impressiveness, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. <laughs> mercy is a very important word. Mercy, by definition, cannot be deserved. It cannot be earned. If you earn mercy, it's no longer mercy. It's just payment. It's, it's, it's gain wage. But mercy, by definition, is not is never earned. It is given despite it not being earned. And so right at the beginning, David is saying, God, he's not saying, God, give me what I deserve. He is saying uh, something very basic and yet very profound. He is not engaged in a self-salvation project. He is appealing to the mercy of God. In verse 10, we jump down there and he says, his appeal to God is that God would create in him a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's not saying, God, I'm good. I've cleaned myself up. I, I have given myself a new heart. Now please find favor with me. I have fixed this whatever. He's saying, God, I am desperate for you. Create in me a clean heart. There is a desperation. There is a right desperation that if anything is going to happen we need God to work in us and for us God if this is going to be <laughs> it better not be up to me if this is going God it's up to you do your work in my heart no amount of work undertaken by ourselves will suffice we throw ourselves upon the mercy and grace of our great God there's that great passage in the book of Joel, right? And Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2, and Paul quotes it later in Romans 10, which says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That it is not everyone who earns it. It is not everyone who impresses God. It is simply a calling upon the name of the Lord in faith 
that he would have mercy that they are saved. When it comes to our joy in Jesus, the same reality applies. Because of the hardness of our hearts, the radical depravity of our nature, if God does not act to awaken our affections for him, they will not be stirred. And so, when we are seeking after our joy, it is dependent upon us not to chase after it with any, anything more than just a cry to God. God, satisfy my heart with yourself. David, in verse 12, is this is his plea. When David prays that God would restore to him the joy of his salvation, right? Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is what David is looking for, desperate for, and needing God to move on his behalf for. Far too much of our lives are lived in practical atheism, as though God doesn't exist, and arrogance as though we have all the tools we need and are entirely independent. Romans eleven thirty six says, All things are from him and through him and to him, and we are creatures and therefore entirely dependent upon, uh, dependent upon the independent God. So he is, there's this desperation and awareness that if anything is to be done, it is God who has to do it. And secondly, he knows that the main problem is on his end. <laughs> he has sinned. He has pursued the insufficient pleasure of sin over communion with his God. Verse 4 says it's fascinating when you think about the context of where this of all the sinning that's going on here. David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We could go down a long way on what David means by that. But ultimately, this radical statement, you can see how he comes to this conclusion when you see and when you consider God as the highest good that David has transgressed against. Sin is wicked on many different fronts. It is transgression against a holy and righteous God. It is the violating of the will of God by commission or omission in either thought or deed. Sin is the violation of God's will by either commission, like you do something you shouldn't do, or omission, you fail to do something you should do, in either thought or deed. But as you boil it down, what are the essentials in all sin? Talk about the Ten Commandments, you know, the have no other gods before me is the first one there, right? And the last one is thou shalt not covet. And you kind of look at this whole picture of the Ten Commandments and how all of it really, as you, as you boil them down, they boil down to that all coveting is idolatry. You boil it down to that all sin is involved in lowering God and choosing something beside him. Taking the pleasure that is found in God and in his will, taking the pleasure and the joy that is found in God rightly, and saying, I don't want that, and I'm going to raise up this idol of an of a insufficient, inferior pleasure and serve it instead, which is by definition idolatry, coveting idolatry, having other gods before him. So sin is wicked because it is transgressing against God, but it's also wicked because it gives you a false joy, thereby keeping you from true joy. It gives you a false joy, keeping you from true joy. Again, our faith is often painted 
as a faith that is all about denial of self, right? And self-denial is in there, self-control. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It is about death to many worldly, self, selfishly, fleshly things. It is death to self. We are to deny ourselves our selfish and fleshly desires and pursuits. We are to put others before ourselves, right? In obedience to Christ's command and in obedience to his example. But as you read a place like Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? For the joy set before him. That even Jesus, in his giving of himself, is aware of the joy that is set before him. Jesus was focused on a higher and greater joy in his Father than the joys that this world can give. Which brings us then to our last point. We said there's this desperation that God's got to do it, knowing that the problem is in us and serving lesser joys. Which brings us to our last point, that the writer contrasts sin primarily with joy, not with obedience. Sin is contrasted with joy, it would seem like, it makes sense, right? Do right or do wrong. But, and so those are the two contrasts. But David doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I've done wrong, help me do right. He goes a little deeper than that. I've done wrong, help me to remember to enjoy you. <laughs> he goes one rung lower, right? A little deeper, a more foundational level of what it means to glorify God. It's not just obedience to him. Underneath that, that obedience flows from a real, authentic joy in him. Obedience will result from joy in God, but there is an absolute necessary intermediary there, the joy of salvation. When it comes to sin, the call is not for naked obedience. Just white-knuckled, I will do the right thing. I mean, if that is done, that is a kind of glorifying to God. That is like... Um, I don't know, coming home after work and it's uh, Wednesday was a you know, wet, miserable day and I went home uh, because, well, I, I, that's where I live and I have to and saw my wife and, you know, it was yeah, because and I show up and say, well, it's, I've got to see you because you're my wife. It's my job. Uh, it's, it's what I have to do. Like, there's a kind of like, okay, that honors her a little bit, I guess, because I did come home and see her. But is it but doesn't really, like, the glorifying thing is like, I'm so glad to be, I couldn't wait to get home and see you. I wanted to be with you because I enjoy you. I enjoy your company. I enjoy your presence. That yes, there's, a, there's an obedience side to that. There's a doing of the right thing. But naked, uh, just, just obedience, devoid from love and enjoyment, just kind of ruins the whole thing. And, and obedience for him, where I want us to live as followers of Jesus is not just in naked obedience, doing the right thing, though I want us to do the right thing. Don't hear me say, go out and do the wrong thing. Sin is, sin is, sin abound, uh, you know, no. But I want it to flow from, man, I love what Jesus has done for me. I love God. <laughs> I am happy in him. It's a different, and then because of my joy in Jesus, my obedience flows from that. David does not ask for restored mechanics of true religion. He doesn't just want the, the mechanics of it to go right. Um, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough. 
we've traded, when we seek after all of these things, when we elevate idols over God, we've traded supreme joy to be found in Jesus for inferior joys. So there is liberation when our eyes are open to see that God's will for us is not the squashing of our joy. God's will for us is not the squashing of your joy. Stop having fun. Come be obedient. It's not the squashing of your joy. It is the finding of our true joy in the only place it really can be found. It is getting a drink of water from the only cistern that actually will quench your thirst. That is what we are after. True joy is not found in the fleeting emotion of joy, but in the pursuing of and having of the one who brings joy. Why is this so important? Why I'm pressing on, I want your joy in Jesus? Because the joys brought to us by sin and this world, they are fading joys. Any joy enjoyed in this world, not as a gift from God, and as a pointer to himself, as the author of all joy, will fade and will fail. His heart for us in our joy in, is that our joy in him would be so deeply rooted in our hearts that we can serve others sacrificially, pay the high cost of love for our enemies, suffer the disdain of this world, and yet not lose an ounce of true joy. Not lose an ounce of true joy. So the people of God look like. We don't have time. I went on too long. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about these peculiar people, Christians, who received the plundering of their property with great joy. And you read that passage. They're, they're people being thrown in prison, being martyred. All of their houses are being ransacked. And it says you received this all with great joy. How in the world do these peculiar people lose their worldly possessions we are so um, privileged, fortunate here in the West with all of our comforts. We forget about the world, the church of, across the world where comforts are fleeting and passing away, where persecution is actually happening right now in, in the church globally, where they can lose the plundering, they can have the plundering of their property and yet rejoice. Places like at the end of Habakkuk where it says, though the fig tree refused to blossom and the, not, the bud doesn't blossom and whatever, all that there's no fruit on the vine, yet I will rejoice. I, I mangled that verse, but you can go look it up. Habakkuk 3, 17. Yet I will. It's basically the, there be no cattle in the fields and all, these, all this abundance and prosperity. If all of it goes away, Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Not just, I will serve him because it's what I'm supposed to do. I'll rejoice because I have him. What do I want for you, your highest joy? Do I want you to obey Christ? Yes. Do I want us to be able to suffer for his name? Yes. Do I want us to be able to bear scorn and ridicule for affirming scripture? Yeah. Do I want you to put to death? Do I want us to put to death what is earthly among us? Yes. Do I want us to turn up our nose at sinful pleasures, spurning them, scorning them? Yes. Do I want you to endure, endure trials of natural suffering in a broken world and keep your faith? Yeah, I do. But, hear this, but 
all of that. I want us to do all of that because there is a far superior pleasure found in God himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We all deserving of his wrath and his judgment and his justice have by nature, by rights, a future that is full of nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth, of terror and of punishment for our future. But because of God's steadfast love for his people, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, right? This is the gospel we rehearse and know and love. Sent his son, lived the righteous life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve, so that everyone who would call upon his name, call upon the name of the Lord, would be saved forgiven of their sins, made righteous in his sight, and brought into union with him, such that they are then given eternal life, that God would be with them, never leave them, nor forsake them. He would be their God, and they would be his people, and he will not abandon them, and they will by no means at the final day ever be disappointed. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. And it is in that joy that David says, restore to me the joy of that reality. That no matter what happens in this life, no matter what sickness comes my way, no matter what trial comes my way, no matter what hardship or suffering comes my way, there is a joy that, is, that I possess because of God's mercy and grace towards me. This world cannot steal. And so I serve him and I'm obedient and I, and I put myself last and others first, not, not out of some sort of like ugly resignation because I have a joy that is so secure, so deep in him that I cannot help but flow out into obedience. There are a lot of obedient Christians out there, but sadly the caricature is often correct. They are obedient and miserable. May we be Christians who live lives that glorify him not just because of our striving to obey him and avoid sin, but because of our deep and abiding joy in him and his salvation. Let's pray. Father, just simply this morning, I pray with David, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Father, if we do good deeds, share our grace story, <laughs> if we work hard in so many areas in, in, in trying to make much of your name, witnessing to people, giving to the church, God supporting it, uh, doing all of, these, all of these activities, but have not love, have not joy in you, Father, we have wasted. I, I just, I, God, I don't, I don't want to be, and I don't want this church, I don't want these people, Father. I want our hearts not to just be obedient, but to be glad in you. You've saved us. You've rescued us. You've promised us a glorious future. You've promised to return one day and set up a kingdom that will not end, full of your glory and your grace and your joy. So, Father, this morning as we sing this closing song, increase in our hearts this joy that there is in you, that we might live to honor you because of who you are and all that you've done and our joy that is caught up in all of that. Pray these things in Jesus' name.